Our reading of God's Word continues from that same point, a reading in chapter 9 of the book of Acts. Listen for God's Word to you. Now there was a believer in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord spoke to him in a vision, calling Ananias. Yes, Lord, he replied. The Lord said, go over to Straight Street to the house of Judas. When you get there, ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. He is praying to me right now. I have shown him a vision of a man named Ananias coming in and laying hands on him so he can see again. But Lord, exclaimed Ananias, I've heard many people talk about the terrible things this man has done to the believers in Jerusalem. And he is authorized by the leading priests to arrest everyone who calls upon your name. But the Lord said, go, for Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to kings, as well as the people of Israel. And I will show him how much he must suffer for my sake, for my name's sake. So Ananias went and found Saul. He laid his hands on him and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road, has sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Instantly, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he got up and was baptized. Afterward, he ate some food and regained his strength. Saul stayed with the believers in Damascus for a few days, and immediately he began preaching about Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is indeed the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So I recently found out that I have become old. It it snuck up on me, really. Uh, maybe I should get some suspenders. It snuck up on me um, uh, because in my in my heart of hearts, I am convinced that I'm about 22, 23. That's that's really the the age that that I really feel like I never kind of progressed beyond. Um, but I found out recently I was old, and the way I found out that I was old is because my little brother is old. And let me let me tell you how I found out that he is old. He posted this picture to, alright. He posted this to social media. <laughs> alright, so, so, I'm having some trouble here. There, hopefully it'll work now. So, so, um, it sounded to me like some of you, uh, got the, got the joke there. The, the fellow with the baggy pants is about to buy his first belt. So, um, so this is, uh, this is something that I think older people smile at more than, than, uh, younger people because, because to older people, that whole sartorial, uh, trend just seems baffling. What, what is up? With the idea of baggy pants, or the or the hat backwards, or or other things that all boil down to getting off my lawn. There's there's a bunch of things that that uh, people in the next generation do that, as an older person, I find mystifying, and I don't know what it is that makes them do this, and um, and uh, and I just realize, you know, when, when I think about it, that I really have become old, and I don't know how that happened, but. But there it is. I'm old. 
and I know there are some other older people here too because I heard some laughing. So, um, so what I want to do is I want to talk about that problem because, because it turns out the younger people really are different from us. The next generations, and I'm thinking, when I say next generations, for purposes of, of discussion, I will say millennials and, and, uh, Gen Z or iGen as it's sometimes called. So the millennial generation and the people after them. So that's people after Generation X. Generation X, uh, Peter's out sometime about, uh, they're, they're in the upper 30s or, or lower 40s. These are all fuzzy things, and sociologists come up with different uh, ratings. But basically, millennials are and Gen Z are people who are below about 40 in age. So for, for rough purposes, you can say that, um, 35 or, or younger, something like that. So that's what I want to talk about is people that I look at and I go, I don't even get that. And honestly, I am so, so old that I don't even understand what I should be making fun of, right? Uh, you know, the, the, the baggy pants are like a 10 year old, 15 year old phenomenon, right? But to me, that's how, that's how cutting edge I am is that, that I'm commenting on something that's, that's 15 years old. But there's more to, uh, this generation than just baggy pants. And I want to talk about some of the ways that they are different from old people like me. Um, this is a chart that shows that they are less churched. And let me zoom in on the important part there, the pink part. Uh, those are generations, those different generations I mentioned. So you can see boomers and, and Gen Xers on the, um, which hand is this? My right hand. So the 12 and the 18, those are boomers and uh, Gen, uh, Gen X. And then the, the 28 is the millennials and the Gen Z is the, is the 38. So you see, um, as each generation comes along, they are less and less likely to, to have any kind of religious affiliation. And uh, that's even when controlled up against uh, previous generations at the same age. So we see that that's something that's different from them. Um, and uh, so, so they are different in terms of their engagement with church. And uh, that, that, is a, that is a problem because there are a lot of uh, problems that we also see in the, the next generation. So one of the problems is they have a greater incidence of depression and other mood disorders and uh, uh, psychological disorders. And uh, no one knows exactly all the reasons for it, but we see this over and over again. Depression is on the rise, um, the rise of teen depression. And it's not limited just to, to diagnosable problems that you can go get some help with. There are... This is, this shows up in the suicide rate. You can see the suicide rate has, has increased over the past, uh, uh two genera- two, two decades. That the green is the, the, the light green is the, is the current rate and the dark green is the, is the previous rate. So you can see in every cohort, including down into the, the people in their pre-teens, um, on the, uh, what is that? The 10 to 14. So even that has, has, uh, more than, more than tripled in the past two decades. So a lot of these problems have increased. But it's not just suicide, it's loneliness and everything in between. So there's a lot of challenges that are being faced by this younger set of generations. Um, uh, and it comes out in a lot of different ways. We've all seen the political polarization that's going on. And it's not just a picture you see on social media. It measures, it's being measured by scientists, uh, social scientists who do surveys. And we can see that since 1994, the, the two uh, political uh, perspectives have moved apart, that where there used to be a lot of common ground between them, now uh, people on the left and people on the right are increasingly separated. So we see the polarization is measured out in a lot of ways. And what that means is that it's very difficult for people to find community. I'm not saying, I don't want to communicate the idea that if you go to church, you won't be depressed or you won't, you won't think dark thoughts. What I mean, though, is that if you 
are in the younger generation and you're unchurched, then you have fewer places to turn because we are more polarized and we are less connected with one another. And you would expect a pastor to say that, but um, people besides pastors have noticed it. Uh, this woman is Dr. Melanie Brewster. She is a psychologist, a professor of psychology, actually, and um, she's a skeptic, and she was giving a talk at Skepticon, which is a convention of atheists, and she said, this is what people in churches have that atheists lack. Let me just zoom in on that that list of things. She says these are these are the kinds of things people in churches take for granted. They come baked into to church involvement that atheists lack. So there's there's not it's harder to find people who will take you dinner when you're sad, who will bring flowers to a sick family member, and so forth to process how angry you are about politics, things like that. These are things that even an atheist has noted and said when you are not part of a church, you lack these sorts of community um, uh, supports that people in churches take for granted. And she was actually saying it would be great if we atheists could come up with that same kind of kind of a culture that that people in churches have. So so there are some things that that people in the younger generation lack uh maybe because society as a whole lacks them but also because they are not part of churches. So or, or not to the same degree. So these are some of the problems. And at the same time, we see there are a lot of metrics that people in these generations are hungry and they're looking for answers. They're looking for solutions. I've, I've mentioned this book before, uh, Man's Search for Meaning uh, by Viktor Frankl. It came out in 1946 and uh, it's a bestseller. In fact, last year it was the 87th um, um, top selling book in Amazon. I think 87. What does it say there? Yeah, 89, sorry. So 89. So a book that came out in the 1940s was number 89 last year. And how many books did Amazon sell? People are hungry. They're looking for meaning. There's a lot of other, there's a lot of other indicators. Uh, the Jordan Peterson uh, phenomenon, I've mentioned him before. He's a university uh, a psychologist. And for the last two years, he's been selling out arenas around the world. He's been selling out big venues, uh, 5,000 seats, things like that. His book has sold over 3 million copies because he's telling people that they can find meaning in embracing the challenges of life when they clean their room and when they when they uh, uh, carry their cross up the hill uh, to the city of God. And it's interesting because if he's a if he's a Christian, um, it's it's very hard to tease out exactly what kind of Christian he is. Um, I'm not sure. I think let's put it this way: he's he's a heretic. If he's a Christian, he's a Christian heretic. But but he has looked at Christianity and said there is an important resource for people in Christianity. And this is something where we see there is engagement with the ideas of Christianity, even by people who are not part of the church. One more example of the ways that people are looking for meaning is the rise of long-form content on social media, places like um, YouTube. I want to just mention one of them. This is Joe Rogan. Some of you may remember him from The Fear Factor, the old TV show. Um, Well, he's got his own show now on YouTube. And um, he gets people like this on. So here's Neil deGrasse Tyson. They talked for three hours and 21 minutes. 7.9 million people watched that. It's like a, the old talking head shows we used to see on, on PBS or C-SPAN. Just two people sitting in a room talking. Um, and 7.9 million views. That's, that's American Idol territory. So, so he's doing something, and there's an audience. He's, he's tapped into an audience. Jonathan Haidt, I've mentioned Jonathan Haidt's book, The, the Righteous Mind, here. Jonathan Haidt's a, a, a pioneer in moral foundations theory, and uh, his interview was only two hours long, uh, but 1.69, 1.6 million people have, have viewed it. So just for perspective, that's as if every 
Presbyterian in the country watched that video. So Joe Rogan is an example, I think, of, of another, and because of, because of course these social media programs skew young, I think they're another example of the hunger in those younger generations to find answers to some of the deepest questions that life presents. And yet at the same time, the church has been very, uh, found it very difficult to engage with them, even though we would say, look, we've got 2,000 years of reflection and contemplation on these issues, and yet we found it very difficult to engage with young people. And I'll just give you one example. The Presbyterian denomination's um, demographics came out again. They do a statistical report every year. They came out again. And you can see there the generations I'm talking about are the are the blue and the green. So that's a 25 and under, and then uh, age 26 to 45, so actually a bit beyond the um, the the millennials into the Gen Xers, and you can see 40% of all Presbyterians are retirement age, and then another 20% are the next decade, and another um, 15% are the decade after that. We are a very old church, and we found it very difficult to engage with people despite their hunger for answers and the various types of dysfunction and problems that they're dealing with in their own lives. And because of this, I see a lot of echoes between our situation today and the situation in the first century. What what we see when we look at this first century church is that about two to two to five years after Jesus was raised from the dead, his church had grown uh, very very much in the area of Judea in the area around Jerusalem. The church had grown a lot, but the growth really kind of came to an end there. That that it it. It was kind of eking out a, a little bit of growth elsewhere. But Jesus had said, I want you to present, uh, present the gospel to the whole world. You'll be my witnesses, he said, to the entire world in, in Jerusalem and Judea, but also in Samaria and to the very ends of the earth. But it wasn't doing that. What little success the church had had at that point in reaching um, outside of Jerusalem and Judea was largely due to persecution. There was a guy named Saul who was who was determined to stamp out the church. He saw it as as a corruption of the Judaism that he had been trained in. And he said, this is a disaster. We have to put an end to it. And so he was doing everything he could to stop the church from growing. So the church was in the same sort of situation, that that it had a mission to expand, to to bring the good news to uh, an entire world. But for a lot of different reasons, they had found it difficult to break out of their geographic area and their particular culture, the, the Jewish culture of the first century. But God knew who the right man for the job was. And in 2020 hindsight, it's obvious what a great what a great match for this job Paul, or as he was earlier called Saul of Tarsus, what a great match he was for this job. If we think about Paul's credentials, they're they're pretty amazing. He was he was a Pharisee, um, but not just any old Pharisee you might meet in a village someplace. He was a Pharisee who was comfortable talking to the highest reaches of Jewish culture. So we talked last week about how the the Jewish Sanhedrin had had a it was mostly made up of a party called the Sadducees, but there was represented on it some of the leading Pharisees in the in the Jewish world. Paul was comfortable working with people in that upper echelon of Jewish society. Um, we see that he has uh, he has a warrant issued by the the high priests. So so Paul is comfortable working in that area. He's highly educated. He was educated by one of the leading rabbis of the time, a man named Gamaliel. And we we um, we heard about Gamaliel last week. He was one of the people in the 
in the chapter we looked at last week. So Gamaliel is one of the, this is like going to Harvard. Paul, Paul was educated by the top educators of that era. So Paul would have been a great choice for that. But Paul was not limited to a Jewish worldview. Paul was cosmopolitan. He did not grow up in Judea. He did not grow up uh, in the Holy Land at all. He actually grew up in Asia Minor. He grew up in the far um, eastern side of Asia Minor in a city called Tarsus. And he was part of the Jewish diaspora that had spread across the Roman world. So Paul uh, had had a much more cosmopolitan upbringing. He spoke Greek fluently. He knew the Greek philosophers and poets, and he could speak to Greeks on their own terms. And not only that, Paul was a Roman citizen. And relative to, you know, today we don't take citizenship as, as being a big, a big deal, but in the Roman world, that was the factor that trumped everything else. Paul had the credential that mattered more than anything else as he went around the Roman world. So Paul was a natural choice, and on top of that, he had a personality. He had exactly the right personality for the job. He was the kind of person who could not be made to quit. And we see that in some of his letters where he talks about being shipwrecked and he just kind of laughs that off and moves on. He gets bitten by a snake and he, he shakes his hand till it, till it drops off into the fire and then he moves on with his business. That's the kind of personality Paul had. So he was the perfect match for the job. The only problem is he didn't want it. He didn't want anything to do with Christianity. In fact, he wanted to put an end to Christianity. And that's the place where we pick up our story today in chapter 9. It says Paul was, um, was approaching Damascus. He'd gotten, he'd gotten some, uh, uh, authority from the Jewish ruling council to arrest any followers of the way. Anybody who was a Jesus follower anywhere in the world, he had, he had an arrest warrant that the Romans would honor. So he could go anywhere and extradite them back to Jerusalem where they'd be tortured and killed. So that's what he's up to. And while that happens, while he's on his way to Damascus, a light from heaven shines around him and he fell to the ground and he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And so he says, who are you, Lord? And the answer comes back, I am Jesus, the one you're persecuting. Now get up and go to the city and you will be told what to do. Who knew it would be so easy (laughs) that on that, Paul turns on a dime and he's ready to begin his ministry. Well, except for one thing, he's got no connections with the local church. And this is where another fellow comes in, a man named Ananias. There was a believer in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord spoke to him in a vision and said, Ananias, because God is about to connect Paul to the church he's been persecuting. And, you know, I do wonder sometimes when I think about the, the, the next generation, those 38% that we saw that have no church affiliation, I wonder how many of them are in the place that, that Paul is in. They've got a relationship with Jesus. And it may be, it may be primitive and it may be unformed and it may be more deep and rich than we can imagine, but we won't know because they are not connected to the church. And so I wonder about those Pauls that are around us in our society today. And I think about Ananias because the Lord speaks to him and he says, he says, go over to Straight Street. He doesn't say, I want you to go to the Roman world. I want you to go to Macedonia and Greece and Rome and even Spain. And I want you to have your head chopped off by a Roman sometime 20 years from now. He doesn't say that. He says, I want you to go over to Straight Street. There's that house there. I want you to go there and uh, go to Judas's house 
and then ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. That's what I want you to do, Ananias. And what does Ananias say? Well, Ananias does exactly the same thing that you would do or I would do if we had a vision and God said, I want you to to do something that pulls us way outside our comfort zone. Ananias says, but Lord, but Lord, that's a terrible plan. I hate that plan. He says, I've heard many people talk about the terrible things this man has done to the believers in Jerusalem. He is authorized by the leading priests to arrest everyone who calls upon your name. This is a terrible idea, Lord. And the Lord said to him, indulge me. And so Ananias goes. Ananias goes and finds Saul. And I think it's fascinating what he says when he gets there. So that's what, that's what we read. But I want to, I want to look at it from the bottom up. So he says, he says, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you in the road has sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. He says, he says, Paul, you are the perfect man for the job that Jesus has assigned you, but you're not quite there. There's one thing that Jesus has, has left out that needs to be done to prepare you for the ministry you're about to face. And again, I think, I think about the Pauls in our world today. I wonder, I wonder how many of them are lacking the preparation for ministry they need to, to reach the next generation, to be able to equip the next generation. They themselves need to be equipped. So, it's interesting to me that for whatever reason, you know, why did Jesus do it this way? He met Paul on the road to Damascus. He could have given Paul everything he needed right then to minister to the Roman world. But for whatever reason, Jesus said, you're not done yet. And the place you will get done is with the local church. And so he sent Paul to this, to this house and then he sent Ananias to Paul. And if we work backwards, we see the next thing, uh, the next thing for me, the, the previous thing, he said, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road has sent me. He's saying, he's saying, I know who you are, and if you're here for the reason I think you're here, then I'm in trouble. But I'm going to out myself. I am a Jesus follower. If you're looking for somebody to arrest and take back to Jerusalem, that's me, because I take orders from Jesus, and Jesus sent me here. He said, Jesus sent me way, way, way outside my comfort zone. But here I am. But the thing I think is most arresting about this statement is what he says at the beginning. He says, Brother Saul... He says, I have enormous misgivings about this. But if you are in a relationship with Jesus, then you're my brother. And so I came here, and I laid my hands on you, and now you receive the Holy Spirit. And that's really, that's really the, the, end of, the end of Ananias. We never hear about Ananias anywhere else in the, in the New Testament. This is his, his uh, walk-on part, and he's done. And the rest is history, except not quite, because Paul begins to to operate in Damascus, and it's not long before he attracts uh, opposition. And what the church there does is they said, we've got to get you out of here because they're going to kill you. So the church smuggles him out of town, and they send him to Jerusalem. And when, he gets, when, he, when Paul gets to Jerusalem, guess what happens to him? Well, the believers are all afraid of him. They did not believe he had truly become a believer. 
So how does this problem get resolved? Well, there's another Ananias there. His name is Barnabas. And so Barnabas uh, brings him to the apostles and tells them how Saul had seen the Lord on the way to Damascus. That Paul needs an Ananias and he needs a Barnabas in order to be effective in his ministry. And I think that that's what we are called to be. If you're of the generation and the mindset that looks at a kid wearing his pants way too baggy, he needs to buy his first ever belt, he needs to turn his hat around, he needs to make his bed and clean up his room, then maybe what God is calling you to do is to step outside your comfort zone and become that Paul's Ananias. Because because everything hangs in the balance. When we think about Paul, what happened? What happened is the church, which had been stuck for two or three years, expanding very slowly throughout the Holy Land, suddenly took the Roman world by storm. It spread in less than a generation all the way across the Roman world. As Paul left, left his, his critics in, in his wake, as he followed from, as, as he traced a path across Asia Minor into Greece, and uh, into Roman, according to tradition, as far as Spain. And I just think to myself, who are the Pauls of our generation? We actually know there were other Pauls in the first century as well. We know that the church also spread to the east. There were there were Pauls, we don't know their names, but there were Pauls who took the gospel to India and Persia and as far as China. So we know that this is something that God has done before, that there are people like Paul who are able to reach a new, a new, a new culture, a new, a new people group. And in order for them to be effective, they need an Ananias. They need someone who will step outside his own comfort zone. Someone who will say, there is preparation left for, for you to, to, to go through. And I want to be instrumental in helping you be prepared for your ministry. But it's going to be uncomfortable for me. And so what I want to ask us as a church, uh, for those of us who are in the next generation, be on the watch, maybe you're Paul, maybe you know Paul. But for those of us who are in the older generations, I want to ask, how comfortable are you? Because if we view the church as a place where we can be comfortable and relaxed, I think that's almost guaranteed to be a sign that we're doing it wrong. I think we are called to be Ananias. We are called to go to that house on Straight Street and do something that exposes us to a lot of risk because we believe that there is sitting there in that in that room the very next Paul. Imagine what our world would be like. Imagine those statistics we looked at. Imagine what it would be like if we could be a part of the thing God is doing to connect people to himself and to help them have the resources to deal with the, the polarization and the depression and the suicide in our world today. Imagine having a role like Ananias. It's a walk-on part, but it's crucial. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks that there are people in the world like Paul, and we know that you are preparing them even now for the ministries you're calling them to. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us to have a vision like Ananias, a vision of who we can, who we can serve and who we can help to equip as they go out into their ministry. And Lord, we pray you would give us courage to do these things um, that are risky and that are outside our comfort zone. 
We pray it through Christ our Lord. Amen.